please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. So I see some, lots of new faces today, and uh, you get to jump right in with us in the series. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and today we turn a new chapter. And I would say we turn a new chapter literally, in that we're coming out of chapter 12 into 13, but also I'd say we're turning a new chapter in the book of Acts. So if you're a note taker and you write in the margins of your Bible, uh, this, you could make a little note here, some significant milestones are, are happening right in front of our eyes. Uh, the first is that right here, we're seeing the, the shift from an emphasis on Peter in the story to an emphasis on the Apostle Paul. So from here on out, we're following, he's still being referred to as Saul, which is his Jewish name, but uh, in chapter, or verse 4, they're going to just turn to the Apostle Paul, that's his Greek name, and they're going to be referring to him as Paul from here on out, and he's going to be the focus. We're following him in his missionary journey. If you remember, we saw him first in chapter 7 to 8, and that was when he was leading the charge in the stoning of Stephen. That was when he was chasing after the Christians, dragging them from their homes, throwing them in prison. So Saul was a terrorist and a persecutor of the church, and as God so often does, he took this man who was as far from him as he could be, humanly speaking, and he turned him into a monument of mercy, and he's going to be leading the charge in this missionary movement. So the emphasis has moved from Peter to Paul, but then also the emphasis is here moving from Jerusalem as the center of this early church to now Antioch in Syria has become the center. And we talked about Antioch a few weeks back, in case you weren't here. Antioch was like the sin city of the Mediterranean world. It, you, it was kind of like Las Vegas in those days. Um, there was a, a lot of sin that was rampant. They had the, the pleasure park of Delphi was in the city. This place was, it's not where you would expect the, the center of, of missions to, to uh, take root. And yet, as God so often does, he's shining his light in this dark place and sending out from really a city that you would have written off, I would imagine. I would have written it off. And so Peter to Paul, Jerusalem to Antioch, those shifts are happening, and yet there's still one more monumental shift happening here, perhaps more monumental than the rest. Here, in these three verses we're going to be studying today, we find the first case of a Christian church sending a cross-cultural missionary. This is the first time that the church is sending people out across culture into the world. G. Campbell Morgan declares, these three verses give the account of the beginning of the great missionary movement. So, you know, how does this text apply to us? In a hundred ways, but in one very significant way, this text applies to us because this is our history. There would not be a church in Aurelia today were it not for Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. So, that's not to say the gospel wasn't spreading in chapters 1 to 12. Of course the gospel was spreading, but who could tell me, what was it that was driving the mission before this in, in verse, chapters 1 to 12? What was sending Christians out into the world? Persecution. That's right. So from here, like before this, in fact, the reason there's a church in Antioch, Syria, is because they were killing Christians in Jerusalem and people were running for their lives. So the, those who were persecuting the church, I used the illustration, it was like they plucked a dandelion and then they blew. And all these seeds just scattered abroad, right? And so some of those seeds landed in Antioch, Syria, and they planted a church and, and all those little seeds took root. So the church was growing and it was expanding, but that wasn't really a model that we could replicate. I don't think our takeaway from chapters 1 to 12 is we should find a leader who will put us to death. That will really get our missions movement going. Now, that would get our missions movement going, but that's, we're not called to replicate that. Whereas here in verses 1 to 3, we do see a model that we can and should replicate. And so we look here and we expect to see something 
helpful, something glorious, something necessary for us as a church. Acts 13, 1 to 3. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're taking a very small bite today because I think there's a a lot for us to chew on in these three verses. In these three brief verses, we see a a glimpse into what it looks like to be an overflow church. And uh, we've used that language ever since we were part of what was then First Baptist, which is now Cornerstone. That has always been a part of our DNA, is that we feel called to be an overflow church. And we don't think that's unique to us. We believe that's what every church is to be. When you read the book of Acts, what you see in these congregations is there is this outward thrust, right? They're, they're not insular communities, though they are tight-knit and there's sweet fellowship, yet they're always reaching out, looking out, sending out, which is what you would expect a group of people to do who were shaped by the Great Commission. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's our call. Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. That's, that's the call, not just for this church, but for every church. And so that's what, what I'm capturing when I use that term, overflow church. Now, we know we're called to overflow. We know we're, we've been given this mission. But if you're like me, perhaps you wonder, what does that look like in practice? I find with so many things in life, we, we get these hypothetical ideas, right? These theological truths that we agree with. But it's when the rubber meets the road, that's where it gets tricky. What does it look like for a church to be an overflow church, a Great Commission church? Well, here in these three verses, I think we've been blessed with a, a wonderful example to learn from so as to emulate. So let's look at this example, and we're going to ask the question, what do we learn here about overflow churches? I want to pull out four lessons from the text. The first is this. Overflow churches must first be healthy churches. And I'm drawing this lesson from verse 1, where we read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here's the principle, and then we'll walk through it. You, you can't overflow if you're empty. That's, just, that's a true principle in life. It's true in the church. You can't give something that you don't have. And dwindling, dying churches will not replicate. Now, this church in Antioch was able to overflow. They were able to rec- replicate because they were healthy. And here he lists just these, these five wonderful leaders uh, that they had in their congregation. Leaders like Barnabas. We've come to know and love Barnabas, if you've been walking with with us through the series. Barnabas was uh, the most prominent leader, perhaps, at this time, other than Peter. And Barnabas was known for his kindness. His name means son of encouragement. And God used Barnabas to bind people together. If you remember, Barnabas was the one when Saul, former terrorist Saul, came and said, I've encountered Jesus and I'm a new man. Everybody else was afraid and, you know, keeping a distance, as we all probably would. But Barnabas was the one who said, all right, Saul, come here. Tell me what God's doing. That's Barnabas. 
Barnabas was the one when Antioch, Sin City, Las Vegas of the Mediterranean world, he was the one who said, I'll go. And the church sent him to witness what God was doing there and to attest to it. They described Barnabas this way. They said that he was a a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas is, is in this church. He's a leader. He's like the pastoral care master, I imagine. If any of, if any of you know Bill Fivey, I, I think of like a guy like Bill Fivey, just binding people together in love. And then they've got Simeon and Lucius. And truth be told, we don't know much about them. There's some speculation, but what good is speculation? I won't even bother with it. What we know is that they're listed with these other leaders, and the other leaders are really wonderfully gifted leaders. So I suspect these folks are as well. All we know about them is that Simeon was referred to as Niger. And that's the Latin word for black. This is before we use the derogatory term that might be in your head right now. This was an affectionate term, Simeon the black. Likely a man with black skin. And Lucius was from Cyrene, which was on the northern tip of, of Africa. And so here we see a little glimpse of the diversity in this young church. These, these powerful leaders who are in this mix with folks like Barnabas and then the fourth one on the list is Manaean. Manaean, we're told, was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. We talked about him last week. Herod Antipas was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. So, now, Manaean didn't have that in common with Herod, we're assuming, because he's a leader in the church. But he was a childhood friend of Herod, and it seems that he actually worked in Herod's court for a season. So this is a guy who was up there in the political ranks, who's well-connected in that world. You can imagine if uh, you know we're preaching and somebody comes to Christ in this church and Seven months in, they say, hey, by the way, you know, I grew up with um, Prime Minister Trudeau, actually. We're really close friends. I used to work at Parliament, and uh, I've got, I go at all the family gatherings. When you've got those kind of connections, it opens doors for ministry that were formerly closed, right? It provides some interesting opportunities. So that's Menaean. And then we turn to Saul, who we know best as the Apostle Paul. Saul, as we've said, was a student of Gamaliel. He was by far the smartest man in Antioch, and it wasn't close. In fact, the only thing that was perhaps more impressive than his unrivaled intelligence was his unrivaled work ethic. Saul worked like a, like a dog. You know, when you read the New Testament, this was a guy who just laid it all on the line all the time. Not just in his writing, but one commentator notes, a conservative estimate of the distances that Paul covered during his missionary work between AD 32 to 65 indicates that he traveled at least 15,500 miles, 25,000 kilometers, of which about 8,700 miles, 14,000 kilometers, represent journeys by land, in all probability on foot. Which is just to say, there was nobody like Paul. Brilliant, worked like a dog. And this is a little snapshot of the leadership team in this church. So just imagine being in that church. That's, that's the group that God has, has blessed you with to lead you forward. This is a healthy church, a fully stacked cupboard of leaders. And I think an important takeaway for us then is that if we want to be an overflow church, if we want to be a church that is missional and sending out and overflowing and blessing, then leadership development needs to be a part of our DNA. We need to care about health and pray about health and pursue health. And I'm not saying this is a takeaway that, you know, therefore the elders need to put good programs in place. Listen, programs are great, and we're going to get to programs. But this health comes from a church that's committed to the Great Commission. The call that was given not to your elders, but the call that was given to all of us as believers is to go and to make disciples. Which means I should be looking at a room full of disciple makers. 
If you're here and you're a Christian, you should be someone who is intentionally investing in other believers, building them up, helping them to mature. That's how you get a healthy, overflowing church. That's a church that's committed to developing leaders. So practically speaking, you know, we just did this dedication. Moms and dads, if we're going to be a healthy, overflow church, it means that the moms and dads in our church ought to be the kinds of moms and dads who are taking seriously the call to raise their kids up to know and serve the Lord. The kinds of moms and dads that are carving out time in their schedule and saying, we could do those other things, but instead, we're going to teach you about Jesus. Instead, we're going to clear out our schedule so that we have time to be in the Word as a family, worshiping as a family, growing as a family. We're not going to be the family that spends Monday to Saturday running in seven different directions and then greeting each other as we eat breakfast in the morning. No, we're going to carve out time intentionally to grow our kids in their walk with the Lord. It looks like for a congregation, an overflow church is the kind of church where you're not twisting arms to get volunteers to teach the next generation the gospel. In overflow churches, there should be a lineup of people saying, I want to invest in them. I want to give up a Sunday to teach them the gospel, to affirm what mom and dad are teaching them at home. An overflow church looks like a church where all of the youth, all of the young people in the congregation are finding themselves mentored and discipled by others in the congregation. Maybe you can't serve with the kids, but I'll tell you, I've talked to the parents of teenagers and nothing would make them happier than for an an older man or an older woman to take an interest in their child and to say, I'd like to to just pour into them. I'd like to just ask them some questions and, and push them towards Christ. That, you could do that. That would be a wonderful gift. An overflow church looks like a, a church filled with Christian friendship. I mean, man, you want to make a difference for Jesus? Have good Christian friendships. The kind of friendships where you talk about the Word of God and encourage each other with what you're seeing. The kind of friendships when, when you pray together for one another. The kind of friendships where you tell the truth when you see things in each other's lives that, that need to be corrected. As iron sharpens iron, so one man, one woman sharpens another. Overflow churches are permeated by friendships like that. Overflow churches intentionally develop teachers and preachers. And overflow churches run programs, of course, to further those ends. Of course, so programs are in the mix. But I would say we'll never be an overflow church if if we assume that a church can just program in health. That you could just plug something into the, the weekly calendar and say, there, we're a healthy church. That's not how it works. We're a healthy church when all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ take it seriously to go and make disciples. Churches like that will naturally raise up leaders like the ones we see here in Acts 13. And churches like that will naturally overflow. Overflow churches must first be healthy churches. Next, second, we see that overflow churches must first be spirit-led churches. We see this in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, I have no idea what it was like when the Holy Spirit said that. We're not told. You know, was it an audible voice in the worship gathering? Set apart for me, maybe. Or was it it a dream? Was was it a vision? I I suspect it was probably somebody just bringing a prophetic word. The Lord has said that we must, but I don't know. And Luke doesn't specify. But what does Luke mean for us to see? Not the how of what God has done. What Luke means for us to see here is the who of what God has done. You know, because we might be tempted to walk away from this and say, well, look at the church in Antioch. Look at what they have done. Now, humanly speaking, they were the sending church. But who sent Paul and Barnabas? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, set them apart for the assignment. 
One commentator notes, while in human terms the church in Antioch is the sending agency of Barnabas and Saul, in theological terms, it is the Holy Spirit who sets apart, calls, commissions, and empowers the two missionaries. Great. So if we want to be an overflow church, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. But again, so now we've got this idea up here. But maybe you're wondering, well, how on earth, what, how do we do that? How do, how do we be a church who's led by the Holy Spirit? If he doesn't even include how exactly it was that the Holy Spirit delivered that message, what, what do we do? I think a fair takeaway is that if you want to be a church that's led by the Holy Spirit, you need to adopt a position of listening. You need to adopt a position of listening. So, I mean, humanly speaking, if you've got an important message, where maybe parents, you're talking to your kids, right? And you're trying to discern, you know, which kid is going to get the message. Well, and you've got one kid who's leaning in close, and they've got a notepad, and they're like, and they're nodding, like eyebrows are up. That's called a posture of listening, right? The other one's got the noise-canceling headphones and is kind of dozing off. And that, that is not, who's, gonna, who's getting the message, right? Who are you going to lean into with, with more of the message? The one who's listening. Well, what does it look like for us as a church to, to take off the noise-canceling headphones and to open our eyes and to lean in and to pull out the notepad? God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This listening posture is so important. So let's just, looking at our passage, what are some ways in which we can be humble and contrite and, and lean in and listen close? Uh, the first thing we see, and it's so obvious, is that they're praying. A, a church that has adopted a posture of listening is a church that prays, that takes that seriously, that makes that a priority in their life, in their calendar, in their week. A church that seeks the Lord. Now listen, humanly speaking, we see this in any of our relationships it's impossible to keep them healthy without communication. So as a married couple, you know, you know this to be true, right? If you don't carve out time in your schedule to get away and to talk and to listen and to dream and cast visions together, then your marriage is going to suffer. Well, so it is with the Lord. A church can become busy with all sorts of really wonderful things, right? Busy running a mile a minute, doing all kinds of things for the Lord. But if that church never stops and leans in and, and communes with the Lord, and seeks his face, and, and lays out her burdens, and, and asks for his leading, his guidance, then she's going to lose it, right? We need prayer. A, a posture of listening is also evident in the fact that they were fasting. I would imagine some of us, myself included, are going to feel some conviction here. Like, when's the last time that you fasted? So here's the church that they've decided, listen, we need you. And, and to demonstrate how much we need you, we're going to forego the physical need of eating. That's important. But we're going to set that aside for a season because in this season, we want you to see, we want to make it clear that we know that this is more important than that. It's more important than anything. Fasting in the New Testament seems to be a, just a means of amplifying prayer, essentially. You can almost picture when you're fasting, it's almost like you're cupping your ear, right? It's like, okay, God, like I'm praying and here I'm like, I am ready. I am eager. I know that I need to hear from you. And of course, this posture of listening was um, demonstrated as they worshipped. And in, in the book of Acts, it tells us that when they worshipped, they devoted themselves to the teaching. So in their worship, they were opening the word of God and listening to him. Which, of course, is where you want to be if you're seeking to be led by the Spirit. A church that wants to be led by the Spirit will, will turn to the word of God regularly and expectantly. With humility and contrition, they'll tremble at the word of God and obey all that it declares. But before we move on, I want to point out one last observation that isn't necessarily here in the text, 
though I would argue it's certainly in the church. So we said they're praying and they're fasting and they're, and they're seeking the Lord in, in the word. But then I'd also say if you want to adopt a posture of listening, then you need to let go of sin. And I'd say that's implied in the text because we see that in this church. You've got to let go of sin. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know, how can a church pretend to be listening, to pretend to be eager for the leadership of God when in all of these areas of, of her life she's holding on to sin? If God's already clearly spoken about this and this and we've said, ah, no thanks, I'm going to keep it. Then how can we then lean in and say, but I would love your leadership on this area of my life. Like this area of my life you can speak into, but not this. No, that doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't work as a church. That doesn't work as a people. So if we want to adopt a posture of listening, it means letting go of the areas where God has already spoken. He's already spoken clearly here. He's spoken clearly here. So I'm going to let go of that sin. And as I do that, the Bible says, if, I hum- if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. So we let go of sin. That's what it looks like to be a church that's being led by the Spirit. They're praying, they're fasting, they're, they're worshiping and, and looking to the Word of God and they're letting go of sin as it is revealed. And if we can adopt that posture, church, we're going to see Him leading and directing and guiding. Overflow churches are first Spirit-led churches. Next, we see that overflow churches must first be generous churches. So if you look back to chapter 12, the last verse says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So there at the end of chapter 12, he's kind of, he's flipping the chapter into 13, and he's alluding back to a story that we saw in chapter 11. And this was the story of this famine. If you remember, there was a prophecy in the church, and they said, there is a big famine that's going to fall upon the church. It's going to hit this region, and we're, we're in trouble. This church in Antioch is in the region that's going to be hit by the famine. Like, just to be clear, this famine's going to hurt them too. But they realized our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they're in real trouble because they're going to be hit by this famine, except they've been ostracized by their community. So all the social measures that would normally help people in a famine, they're not going to have access to any of it because they're outcasts in their city. And so this church in Antioch, even though they're about to get smacked by a famine too, decided we're going to send our surplus, our extra, we're going to send it to Jerusalem, and we're going to send it with Barnabas and Saul, our very best leaders. We're going to give you our best stuff and our best people, and, and we're going to weather this storm together, which is just a remarkably generous thing to do. And it gives you a little glimpse into the heart of this church. right? We're, we tend to be self-preserving people, don't we? But here we see this church in Antioch. They were not a self-preserving church. They were a generous church, a faithful church, coming alongside others, committed to the mission. And at the end of chapter 12, they come home, which is awesome. I mean, I, this church in Antioch, wonderful people, but I can imagine, no offense to Menaean and Simeon and Lucius, but I can imagine when they see Saul coming back, they're just like, oh, yes. I cannot wait to hear Saul preach again. Like, come on, Saul, this is the smartest guy around. Like, and he preaches to our church. You know, they bring their friends to church. They're like, you've got to come to church. You've got to hear Saul. He's brilliant. They probably didn't do that. But, they loved sitting under the teaching of this brother. And Barnabas, like the pastoral care expert, giving hugs and making people feel loved. And the dream team is back together. That's what we see at the end of chapter 12. And then we flip over, you know, two verses into chapter 13. And it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, who? Barnabas and Saul. 
themselves for the work to which I've called them. And they just got the dream team back together. Like, it was pretty generous, Lord, that we sent them in the first place to Jerusalem. Right? That was a sacrificial gift. And God says, I know. And you're going to send them again. And in verse 3, it says, After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Now, the, the Greek word there for sent them off has got a sense of uh, setting free or releasing, which I think actually better conveys what's happening here. Because the reality is, and I believe the church in Antioch knew it, the reality is they couldn't send Saul and Barnabas because they didn't own them. Right? Saul and Barnabas belonged to Jesus. Every one of us belongs to Jesus. All of, all of our favorite leaders belong to Jesus. Jesus had sent Saul and Barnabas to the church in Antioch for a season. And what a blessed season it was for them. But then he said, I've got a, I've got a different plan for them. And P.S., they're mine. And so the church released them, their beloved leaders, and sent them away. Now, as I studied through this this past week, I felt terribly convicted, if I'm being honest. Terribly convicted. Because this passage flies in the face of everything that my flesh wants. I would suspect everything that all of our fleshes want. In every other area of our lives, aren't we? We're always building. We're always trying to amass a larger empire. In my business, I want to I grow it. Maybe in my garden outside, I want to cultivate it. I, flour- I want it to flourish. I want it to grow. If I'm a builder, you know, I want to expand that deck at the back of my house. Or I want to expand that. Everything else in my life is about accumulating and, and storing up and treasuring. And here, God says, actually, that's not the plan. The plan is not for you to build the biggest, shiniest church in Antioch. That everybody will say, wow, look at that church in Antioch. That, that church is the best. I wish we had people like that. I wish that we were vibrant and growing like that. that. That's not what God's committed to at all. And I just felt terribly convicted. You know, we've been trying to hire uh, for the last over a year. And it just made me think about all the people that I've called I just said, hey, you know, maybe is the Lord calling you to come here? And I'd like to think that I, that I was thinking about the congregations that they would be leaving behind. I'd like to think that my heart was in a good place. But the reality is probably not as much as it should have been. That I was just so ready to bring help here. But overflow churches are givers, not takers. And I suspect this is going to be a real challenge for us moving forward. Not just because human beings are naturally selfish, which we are. But because of our story, Redeemer, we've, in September it will be 11 years since we were planted here. And for 11 years, well, almost 11 years, I'd say at one point this shifted, but for most of our history, we've been takers. It's just true. Right? First Baptist, when they planted us, it was so generous. You know, they sent people. They sent money. They sent volunteers. They trained up our leaders. They prayed for us faithfully. And we took and we took and we took. And I'm, listen, that's not wrong. It was, that's what you do when you're getting started. We were a baby. Your babies feed on the milk, and that's who we were, and we were taking whatever they would give us. But that was our story. And to be clear, you know, it's similar to the story we see in Antioch. If you remember a few weeks ago, Antioch, at one point, this church that, you know, we're celebrating their generosity and their sending, but they were takers too. Remember that when this church started building up, the church in Jerusalem said, hey, I think they need some help. We're going to send Barnabas beloved Barnabas. We're going to send him, release him to Antioch. Barnabas gets there and he's like, this church, we need some, we need some support. So he goes to Tarsus and he says, Saul, Saul, you need to come to Antioch. And so here Antioch has just received these two world-class leaders. They were takers for a season, but now they've become givers. They've transitioned. 
And just as I reflected on this text, it struck me that we probably need to be preparing for that shift here. In our hearts, in our thinking, we need to prepare to transition from takers and receivers to to givers, to being the ones who say, we're going to send, even though it hurts. We're going to send, we're going to invest to bless you because we think we can... We think we can weather this next storm. I want to see that shift in my heart. I want to see that shift in our hearts because overflow churches must first be generous churches. And then fourth and finally, overflow churches must first be worshipful churches. Look one more time at verse 2. It says, While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So when, when did this first missionary assignment, when did it come to fruition? Like, when, when was that seed planted? Well, it was as the church was worshiping the Lord. As they were coming together and declaring with one voice His great name, His, His power, His glory. As they're lifting up one voice to the Lord, God speaks to them and He says, Hey, you're going to have to let go of, of these beloved leaders because they're moving on. John Piper argues, therefore, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exists because worship doesn't. You've probably heard me use that quote a number of times. It's such a helpful quote. Missions exists, why? Because worship doesn't. Why do we go? Why do we send? Why are we making disciples? Why would we ever pay that price? Why do we do it? Is it to grow our empire? To, ex- to expand our fame? Our- to feel good about ourselves? No. We go because there are places in the world where Jesus is not receiving the praise that he deserves. There are whole people groups who've never heard of him. There are, there are people in our city right now who, who, who they're not worshiping Jesus. They're, they're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping themselves. They're not thinking at all about this and yet Jesus deserves their praise. He made them. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Missional churches are fueled by worship and so this church as they're worshiping jesus in antioch and god is growing this vibrant community and it's so awesome and the the dream team is back together god says i got a plan for them and and, and we're going to send them over here because over here uh jesus is not being worshiped the way that he ought to be and the church immediately says instinctively okay well because we want jesus to be worshiped there just like he's being worshiped here it's a no-brainer take them take our best we're sending them now, it's important for us to see this because we'll be tempted to fuel mission and overflow with all the wrong things. Some good things, some bad things. We'll be tempted to fuel it with bad things like guilt. You know, we, we try to fuel a lot of things with guilt, don't we? It doesn't work, and particularly with missions. You can't be the church that says, oh, I guess we should put some more money in the missions budget because that's what churches do. I'd really like to upgrade the sound system, but... Uh, you know, we, we can't be that church. You can't be the church that says, well, I guess we should probably find some partners that we could come alongside because we don't want to be the church that doesn't have any missions partners. You, guilt won't get us anywhere. So you can't fuel missions with guilt. You can't fuel it with pride either. That one is, is obviously wrong, but it's very tempting. It can be very, very easy for a church to find their identity than in missions and to, to, to lean into missions because it's just so good to say, guess how big our missions line is? Guess how many churches we've planted? Or guess how many churches are where are, have got our brand on the name tag? We're really growing our empire here. It's easy to become that. But that's no fuel for missions. That won't work. And you're probably instinctively saying, well, obviously. Well, the third one's maybe less instinctive. You also can't fuel missions with a, with a love for the lost. And that feels wrong, right? 
And hear me, love for the lost is important and mercy is clearly a part of our mission. But if that's the fuel, if that's why we do what we do, it, it won't ultimately work. You know why? Because sometimes lost people are mean. Sometimes lost people spit at you and punch you and, and file lawsuits against you and, and sometimes they kill you as we've, we've seen in the book of Acts. So you, got, you need more fuel than that. I, uh, I've shared this story a long time ago, but I remember when I was just working at the lighthouse or I was sharing devotions at, during their lunchtime. Um, and I, this was probably eight, nine years ago. I was just getting started in the routine. And before the meal, they would, they would allow you to get up and just to share the gospel. And so I would go every Thursday and, I'd, and I would get up and in a room of probably like 34 people and you kind of stand in the middle and just talk about Jesus for a bit and then close my Bible and I'd sit down at the table and I'd share a meal with them. And I did that for an extended season. But there was this one woman and she hated me. Uh, it's hard to believe, I know. She, she really hated me. And uh, she would, I'd, I'd get up there to preach and she'd heckle me. You know, she'd, she'd scoff in the middle of the sermons and she'd, she'd shout out things about what she disagreed with. Uh, and then, like, in, just in my presence, I'd often try to sit at her table just to try and maybe soften her a little bit. And she would just make fun of me, like make fun of my hair, make fun of my face, make fun of my clothes, make fun of my lisp. She would just, like, and it wasn't the cute little, like, I'm just ribbing him. It was like, no, like, Get up and leave our table. You are so annoying. I don't like you. That kind of thing. And uh, there were times where I confessed this, this. She's like, this little lady, she had me just about to throw in the towel. There was one Thursday where I just thought, I, do not wanna, I don't want to walk in here and just be assaulted by this little lady again. What am I doing with my life? And, but it was in that moment when God taught me this really valuable lesson that has not left me. In fact, if you go to my office, I've got a little picture of her on my desk. Because this lesson really shaped me. That Jesus just, I felt him tell me that I, Jesus, Jesus deserves her praise. Jesus deserves her praise. So it's like, why are you going? Why are you going to go and be heckled and be harassed? By, because Jesus deserves her praise. And right now, he's not receiving it. So let's, let's go again. Let's, let's open the Bible. Let's do this again. Can I tell you something? I never led her to the Lord. I never even led her to like me. Like she... That story didn't get better, but then I'll tell you something else. Somebody else did lead her to the Lord. A week before she died, somebody from Cornerstone was able to go and visit with her at the hospital, and she surrendered her life to the Lord, and it was the real thing. They did follow-up visits through the week. She was saying in the following, follow-up visits, you know, I regret that I was, just, I was so mean through my whole life. Like, the Holy Spirit really changed her in that last week. And can I tell you something? She's worshiping Jesus right now. He deserves her praise. Now, did I have anything to do with that? Humanly speaking, no, I don't, I don't think that any of those seeds ever really landed. The Lord used somebody else. But the lesson there that he, he taught me is one that I hope that I never lose sight of. And I hope that we never lose sight of. You know, why, do we, why do we do this? Why do we do anything? For his glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if we lose sight of that, if we start doing our stuff, you know, just to be busy for the Lord, to be, to be pushing forward for the Lord, to try and impress the world, to try and make ourselves feel better, to appease our guilt. It's going to crumble and fall. It, it, it's got no substance. But if we do what we do because we've seen Jesus and we love Jesus and he is worthy of praise and he's worthy of my life, well, that, that, that's unstoppable. When we behold the King of Kings who came down from his throne, to, to live amongst us and to love us 
and to obey for us and then to die in our place on that cross so that we could forever be with him, when we're so shaped by that, that changes the church and that fuels mission and it fuels a mission that won't ever be stopped. Churches that are fueled by worship, churches that are worshipful churches, will overflow. And those churches won't fall into the trap of hoarding. Of, oh, let's build our empire. Let's, let's bust out the walls and see how, many, how awesome we can make this thing here. Churches like that look out into a broken world and say, God, our hands are open. Do whatever you would do. Further your mission in the world. And as I prayed how to bring the sermon to a close, the Lord led my, time, my mind to this warning that Jesus issued to the church in Ephesus. So let me just read this, and we'll just let it sit for a moment. If you remember, in Revelation, Jesus is addressing these various churches, and he speaks to this church in Ephesus, and he commends them. So it's like, this is a hard-working church. And more than that, this is a, a doctrinal church. They are orthodox. They are faithful. They don't put up with heresy. They open the Bible, and they let it rip. Like, they are committed to the truth. And he says to them, though, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. And I just felt, as I prepared this sermon and I thought about how do we land it, the Lord really just led my heart to that warning. And perhaps some of us need to hear it today. If we want to be used by Him, if we want, as a church, as a people, if we want to be overflowing into the world, living the lives that he, He's made us to live, we, we can't get there if we ever move Him out of the center place in our hearts. If our love for Him becomes forced and cold, if our affection for him becomes peripheral, like some, just some side part of who we are, if we become more excited about our study and our accumulation of knowledge than we are about just worshiping him and delighting in him. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about singing. Corporate singing is certainly a part of it, but I'm talking about life, living to the glory of God with the joy of the Lord fueling us, going into the world, worshiping him in our jobs, in our in our waking in our sleeping in our rising in our teaching in our in our working in our workplace all of it for his glory a church that is filled with people with hearts like that that church changes the world but a church that loses sight of that and has all the right answers to all the questions will never be an overflow church and so i'd say i have this against you you've abandoned the love that you had at first i pray that if there's any of us who need to hear that that we would just receive that from the lord We'd turn and we would ask for him to stir up in our hearts what needs to be there. As we prepare for this next season, and I do believe, church, as I said, that God is transitioning us from a season of, of taking and receiving to a season of, of giving and spreading. As we prepare, we need to work hard to raise up leaders to be healthy. And we need to position ourselves to listen carefully to the Spirit as we pray, we fast, and we look to his word, and we let go of sin. And we need to grow in our generosity. But finally and most importantly, we need to worship. To that end, would you pray with me? Oh, great God, we love you. And I pray that even, even as we bow our heads now and look to you, I pray that you would open up our eyes in faith to see just another glimpse of you, our great God, worthy of praise. We love you. Holy, holy, holy you are. And, and yet you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You're a God of mercy. You care about people like us. Lord, within this room, 
every single one of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, we look at our week, oh, we have fallen short of what you deserve. Every single one of us have sinned against you in things that we've done or things that we should have done that we didn't do. Every single one of us have taken our eyes off of Jesus like Peter when he started sinking as he stepped out of the boat. Every single one of us have had moments when we tried to do things in our own strength. And yet, as we come here today, you love us. You love us. You sent your son to die in our place. You have filled us with your spirit. As we look to you in faith and confess our sins and put our trust in Christ, you have changed us and you're not done changing us and you're working in us. God, I pray that we would just see you today and that we would respond to you, not just with our singing, but Lord, I pray that our singing would would shake the rafters. But Lord, I pray that our living, Lord, would be so exemplified by worship. God, that we would go from this place a different people. Lord, that in our workplace and in our homes, we would be worshipers, God, in all that we say and all that we do. And God, so we pray. We pray that you'd break our hearts for the lost, break our hearts for all of those who have not yet heard, but we pray that the ultimate drive would would not just be a love for those lost people, God, but a love for you which says that those lost people were made to worship you. Our neighbors were made, they exist to worship you. Lord, that's why we're here. And so, God, we pray that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would bow the knee and lift their voices and look to you and, and glorify you because you deserve all of it. If every voice on this planet right now lifted up their songs of praise to you, it would still be infinitely small when it comes to an offering that you deserve, God. But we want to offer up the very best offering we can. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. We ask for your help. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?